Live from Ogasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault bonus episode two, interview with Eric Elliott. Hello, kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, the comics-loving curator of the vault, Nathan Marchand, and today, in a special interview, because I'm pumping out some bonus episodes this month for all of you in quarantine because of coronavirus, I have with me today... Over Skype, because the island's still in lockdown and I can't get people over here, <laughs> Eric Elliott. Hey, Nathan. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's wonderful having you on the show. Now, do you, you, mind, like, do you mind if I like just, uh, I feel like I, this is going to be awkward if I don't just like uh, clear the air real quick. So I, I want to offer my apologies to Jimmy. You know, we got into a little bit of a flame war online. I'm really sorry. And I, I want to thank him for his service. <laughs> Yeah, Jimmy, it was just a big misunderstanding. I, I, I'm really sorry. Yeah. What What exactly happened? Yeah, I, I think I accused him of being an alien. And, oh. Um, he, he quickly reminded me that he fought the aliens. So it was a little misunderstanding. Yeah, he's uh, he's not very fond of those green-skinned Messiah 13 aliens. They're a weird bunch. Yeah, I learned that the hard way. So sorry about that, Jimmy. Perhaps you should uh, watch his uh, famous docudrama, The War in Space. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I did, Jimmy. I, I watched it multiple times. Again, thank you for your service. Uh, thanks for being such a good sport about that, Jimmy. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but actually, what's interesting is that even though this is your first time being on the show, you've had something of a presence, actually, for the last couple of months because you are the mastermind, shall we say, <laughs> of Batman meets Godzilla. Yes, I, I've been called worse. I'll take Mastermind. <laughs> I wasn't sure what title to give you, honestly. It was like, is he the writer? Is he the editor? Yeah. No, so I, creator? I, I didn't know what title to give you. Yeah, so that's good. I mean, we'll start there because I'm, I'm wearing multiple hats on this. So one, you know, I adapted this Toho treatment. <laughs> Speaking of Flame Batman. Wars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We yeah. So. I, that's another thing I've been talking about on the show, the, uh, the, uh, the feedback that you've been sending me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we'll have to break we have to break this down because there's so so many little moving parts. But just kind of where I come into this, I've always wanted to write a comic, and I've written for blogs. I've written, I published books under different names, and so I've always had kind of this bucket list item to write a comic. In fact, uh, growing up, I used to have you know this good friend Jarvis, and he and I would spend hours on the phone just talking about our, you know, creating comic book characters and, you know, how we wanted to have a comic book company. And this is back in the eighties. He really had no distribution uh, <laughs> for anything like that. And so we had all, you know, all these great ideas for, for characters and storylines and crossovers that just never happened. So it's been on my bucket list to create a comic book. And then this kind of fell into my lap last year. You know, I was listening to another podcast, a Gilbert Godfrey's Amazing Colossal Podcast, and they had on the show uh, a guest named Chip Kidd, who is a you know, well-known Batman writer. In fact, he did the Batman manga books. He oh, you know, Bat manga, yeah, Bat manga. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. So like, yeah, so like people, you know, your listeners may be more familiar with him from that, but he was on the podcast talking to Frank Santipadre about this lost movie, Batman Meets Godzilla. And so one of the listeners 
is a guy named Brian Williams. He basically went out and he found, I'm sorry, it's Brian Richard. So Brian Richard went out and found the treatment in the Dozier archives and the University of Wyoming. So it was. It's a William Dozier, right? Yeah, William Dozier. So he was the producer of the Batman TV series. And so he had like a collection of his papers out at the University of Wyoming. And so, you know, you can see the listing online. And so Brian Richard found the listing online and kind of went to the listeners group on Facebook and asked if anybody could help him get the treatment. And so, you know, I rolled up my sleeves and and talked to the nice people over at University of Wyoming and they were able to send me a PDF of the treatment. And so I read yeah, so I read through the treatment. It's about 22 pages, 20, 22 pages. And I was like, this is crazy. This is so wild. Somebody needs to do something with this. And mm-hmm. so Brian and I kind of put our heads together about what we could do. And you know, this idea of doing a, a comic book came about. Kind of from there, I kind of took on you know, this goal of creating this web comic. And so to make it happen, I wore the hat as a writer. And I adapted the treatment. You know, which doesn't have any dialogue. You know, treatment is kind of like an outline for a movie. You know, these are the characters, the locations. These are things that could happen. You know, interesting things that can happen in it. And so I took that treatment and adapted it into a three-issue comic book script. And then I went out to different Facebook groups like Batman, Kaiju groups, comic book writers and artist groups, and said, "Hey, I'm trying to put this web comic together. Who's interested in helping me?" wasn't sure if anybody was going to raise their hand, but but within a week, I had like you know, 25 people that showed up to help out. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so I was real fortunate to, you know, to get such great interest in it, and I mean, it just kind of shows you know, the love that's out there for both of these franchises. From there, it was kind of a matter of, you know, we polished the script a little bit, and the story didn't really change much that I had written, but some dialogue changes just kind of make it more like the Batman TV series, I mean, which is really talky. Some stuff was done there. Uh, comic and, books back then were just very talky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the TV series itself, you know, so you have Adam West and Burt Ward. They're talking constantly, <laughs> and, and, it's, and it's part of the charm. Holy the insert noun here, Batman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a lot of and so and and you speaking of that, that's like one of the more challenging things to do when you're writing for that Burt Ward Robin is coming up with those lines and you know we had a few good ones in the book. I think uh, one of not- my favorites was uh, oh wait, you have issue one out right now, and I'm trying to remember. I keep picturing the cover where he's saying "Holy lizards, Batman." Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I can't. Remember, I think there was another one that cracked me up because at one point in the issue, I won't explain the context because it's a little insane. They get attacked by evil sumo wrestlers, and I think there was a Robin line at that point that just just killed yeah, the me. holy holy jolly giants, Batman. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So like, you have to have those kind of things in there, and so like my adaptation didn't have enough of them. So we put our heads together. Some of the writers on the book, especially. Matthew Dinian, he writes kaiju novels, and uh, oh, cool. so he has some. But he's also a big Batman fan, so he has some good contributions on on some of those holy lines. So we went out, we got twenty something people raised their hand, basically kind of let people choose their own level of, of engagement, you know. So we had people that kind of jumped in and helped with some of the polishing of the script, and then when it came to handing out the page assignments to the artists. The artists are contributing, you know, up to four pages at a time. So it's a time commitment. So you really have to kind of have a passion for it. And so those artists who really were engaged and wanting to help out on this, they took the pages and then over a couple of months 
were able to put this book together. Mm -hmm. I don't Um, think people quite realize how taxing comic book art can be because it's not just simply drawing an image. You have to draw a series of images that tell a story because the, the theory, getting into a little bit of comic book theory, understanding comics right here. The the way it works is that each panel is kind of this snapshot moment. And then you, when you go to the next panel, there is a passage of time that occurs in those little lines dividing each of those panels. And depending on what kind of a story you're telling, it could be a second. It could be a minute. It could be hours. It could be days. It could even be years. I've read comics where that's happened. So sure. you have to draw the panels in such a way that it visually communicates the passage of time in this. That's it's right. a very I mean, it's a very unique medium and it's an American invention. So this is a unique American art form that has taken the world by storm. You know, right up there with swing dance and rock and roll, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So one of the tricks of the medium is, is sequential art. And so you're kind of choosing the time frame and the perspective and, you know, it's almost like creating a movie on, on the page because you're picking the camera angles. And then it's a kind of which shots give us the best information of what's happening. And so as you're reading a comic, you're kind of creating the story between the panels, kind of imagining what's happening between the shots. And that's kind of the magic of comics. When I wrote the script for the comics, so I had to break the story into pages and each page into panels for the artist's. So the artist will take their assigned pages and they'll do a, what's like a thumbnail, which is kind of a rough pencil drawing of what they think the page layout should be. We have five panels on this page and this is what the big panel will be this because we want to draw attention to this and here's the sequence and so forth. So it's kind of a back and forth discussion with the artist on the page layout and then they go and they draw. They'll do like a line drawing different artists work in different ways so some of them are working on tablets and some of them are working with traditional mediums like pencil and paper and so you get to a stage where you have a breakdown which is your pencil drawing before the ink or color has been applied so on this book most of the artists did their own inking and their own coloring oh, cool. but like in tr- yeah so like in traditional comics you usually have uh, multiple people doing that. So you have somebody doing the pencils, you have somebody doing the inking, which is an art on its own, and then the coloring of the comic. And that's before you get into the lettering. On this comic, most people did their own inking and their own coloring. Josue Cabero, who was an artist on this book, who did his four pages, but he also did inking and coloring on Stephen Schillings, who kind of worked in pencil. Mm-hmm. So we had the you know, the artist doing inking and coloring, and so then you after you have all the pages, then because you know, so one thing we haven't really talked about is we have multiple artists who are contributing, so they're each kind of doing multiple pages. So there's kind of like a baton pass between mm-hmm. the artists on their pages, and so some things happen because this is kind of a global project. We have people all over the world. Oh wow. Um, yeah, so we had uh, Charles Butler in the UK and Josue Cabero in Costa Rica. And then we had American artists like Howard Simpson and Ian Miller and um, Kerouac. And then we had Mohammed Rek, who's in Egypt. So we had all these uh, people from all over the world drawing these pages. And then they're working, it's not in se- sequence, even though kind of lining up pages between these artists in sequence, but the artists kind of work their pages at their own pace and at their own time. And so 
one of the fun fun things coming out of this is like you have some continuity issues between you know what the artist interprets in the script and so you have to kind of work through some of those one of those that we had was in the early part of the book just on the outfit that Barbara Gordon is wearing so two artists had two different interpretations and <laughs> and and so then like my well, job for those editor, who don't know Barbara Gordon is Batgirl the uh, yeah, the yeah, daughter yeah. of uh, Commissioner Gordon that's right and so we had so we had kind of a different take on the outfit and so that's like one of the things so as you know editing the book you know my job is kind of find those continuity errors and try to resolve them you know, obviously you don't want people to have to do rework, but you know, everybody wants to kind of put the best product forward. And so we had a little bit of rework on the back end just doing that. But that's kind of the process. And it really happened over about three months. I went out to Facebook groups about November and we published the book in late February. So it just took us a few months to, to pull it all together. And so fortunately, the, the response has been really good from the fans out there. And there's you know, still a lot of love for the what I call the Adam West Batman yeah. And so there's been a lot of great support out there. And then, you know, the Kaiju communities tighten it. Everybody knows each other and everybody's been uh, supportive from the Godzilla side as well. It's been very beneficial that this project was popularized, I guess you could say, the the Lost Project, I should say, because of John LeMay with his Lost Films book, because that was one of the most noteworthy entries in that book of, of the first time I actually heard about it. I was at G-Fest, and he was doing a presentation on the research that he had done for the book, and that was one of the ones he mentioned. He, he said, yep, there was a story treatment for a Batman meets Godzilla, and it would have been the Adam West Batman. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and 60s Godzilla, <laughs> it almost happened. <laughs> like, you have got to be kidding me. I want this movie. <laughs> That's right. And recently I, on Twitter, there was a poll of like various Batman movies that haven't been made. And there's and this one isn't the only one. There's multiple ones out there. Oh, yeah. Tim, Bur Tim Burton ones. And so the survey was, you know, which one of these do you most want to see? And there was, you know, everybody overwhelmingly said they want to see the Batman meets Godzilla. And I mean, that was independent of us. That was just another um, magazine put that out there as a poll. So there's mm -hmm. a lot of love and interest in this book. And I think that's kind of helped in terms of getting the team together to produce something like this. Oh, definitely. I want to bring this up because this is one of the things that's been talked about a lot, both on the MIFV Twitter and on the show. And that's, you, you mentioned the William Dozer treatment. And yeah. that's been the backbone of what you've been using. But you've also made mention in some of your promotional materials that Shinichi Sekizawa, one of my favorite screenwriters who will be talked about forever on the show because screenwriters for these movies need to be talked about more. There is tale that he also put together something of a treatment, but there seems to be a little bit of debate over if it was actually done or not. And I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know if we'll ever know to anyone's satisfaction all that happened. And the reason why is that we don't have that Sekizawa treatment. So I had actually corresponded with John LeMay on this. And, you know, I saw in his book he wrote about it and I asked him about it. According to John, Sekizawa did a treatment in the latter part of 1965, and the Batman show itself launched in 1966, like January 1966. Ah. So this would have been before the show launched. So we don't really have Sekizawa's treatment, which would have been in Japanese, but there was a book on the lost scripts, Toho scripts. and you know, Toho so this Unpublished was, Works, I think it was what it was. Th 
Yeah, keep me straight. So that's the, I think the source that John is leaning on to say that there was a second Zawa script. And in that book, I believe there's some images of the script. And some people will say that those were fan produced and they're forgeries. I can't say, you know. I'm I'm actually willing to believe that Sekizawa did it because a Batman meets Godzilla, especially an Adam West, Batman 66, Batman meets Godzilla at that moment in Godzilla's history would have been right up Sekizawa's alley. He liked doing the lighter films in the Godzilla series. He was very good with humor. And yeah, you know, the, so it, yeah. I think it would have been perfect for him. He would, I think he would have honestly had a blast doing it. My own personal take is that the treatment seems to have a Japanese origin, even though the, the one we're working on is English. The way the treatment is written, it points to someone who is more familiar with Japan than they are with Batman. And the reason why I say that is there's key things that are missing from the treatment that somebody familiar with Batman, a Batman writer would have included. There's no Alfred, for instance. There's no Batman villain. And you got to remember back in the TV series, one of the biggest promotional tools they used were the villains, getting a big yes. actor to play the villain. That's because and Batman so, has one of the best rogues galleries in comics. <laughs> absolutely. It was a great opportunity for these actors like Burgess Meredith to come in and ham it up on TV. And so there was no Batman villain in the, the treatment as kind of a generic mad scientist type. And there's no death traps, which is also like a huge part of the TV series. You, know, <laughs> yes. you, you have these big set pieces where, you know, Batman and Robin have to escape certain doom, and they always manage to. So that was missing. But what the treatment did have a lot of were references to Japanese things. In fact, one of the most interesting parts of the treatment was a scene where Batman and Robin run nude through a, a Japanese bathhouse. And, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. And so. And, and like, and so part of my job as I'm adapting this treatment is like, what would have happened on the way to the screen? What would have made it? What wouldn't? What would change? Because that that happens in real life. You know, when you're making a movie, movie, you, a lot of things change between a treatment and the script, and a lot of things change between the first draft of the script and the third draft of the script, and then even on the set when they're filming the movie, things change on a daily basis. So just necessarily what's in the treatment isn't necessarily what makes it into a film. And so like for me, that was something that wasn't really necessary to have <laughs> in the story. And so that one didn't make it. We talked about the sumo wrestlers. So that was actually in the treatment. Um, Batman and Robin <laughs> fight sumo wrestlers on a bullet train. And that made it. That I kept that. That was great. You know, there's other things that wouldn't have made sense in a Batman-type show. Like, a number of the villains were secret agents that were really robots in disguise. You know, more of a, you know, like a James Bond or, mm-hmm. you know, man-uncle-type, or even like Six Million Dollar Man-type um, <laughs> villain. Before Six so, Million Dollar Man. <laughs> yeah, they, they beat them to the punt. So I played with that. We don't have any secret robot agents in the comic book. So part of what I try to do when I was adapting it is what makes sense for both of these franchises. Really, I, what I wanted to do is make the fans of Batman happy. I wanted to make the fans of Godzilla happy and then kind of have the story that made sense. So kind of going back to, you know, is this something based on Sekizawa treatment? I could really see that it could be just because there's a really hard Japanese influence on this. 
and maybe Sekizawa wouldn't have been as familiar with some of the key Batman things. And so kind of what I write in the opening to the comic is, you know, I, it's easy to imagine basically that in leading up to the 1966 TV series debut, that there was a buzz in Japan. So like in 1965, when Sekizawa allegedly wrote a treatment, it probably would have been hard to ignore this buzz going on in Japan because they were gearing up to release toys and manga to coincide with the TV series. So the industry was kind of already moving to produce Batman product. And so it's easy to imagine that, you know, Sekizawa you know, heard about this buzz. And the idea, too, was that Toho was looking for another hit. And so Godzilla versus King Kong was a huge hit for them, and they were looking for another crossover hit. So it was easy to imagine the ideas that would have come up. This would have been one of those. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't know if we'll ever know for sure what Sekizawa's involvement was unless you know, Toho brings something forward at this time. But it's kind of one of those fun what ifs to play. Oh, yeah. And to my, the best of my research into this, I think Sekizawa had a hand in it. You know, we have an English version of the treatment. We don't know who wrote it. It doesn't look like it was written by one of Dozier's writers, like Sample, who was a, one of the big TV writers. <laughs> that's, a, that's a name we're familiar with because he wrote King Kong 76. Yeah, that's right. And so I talked to John LeMay and I also talked to Oscar Lilly, who is like a William Dozier expert. So I kind of took both of their thoughts on this and just kind of synthesized what makes sense for this story. And so my take on this is that somehow there was a bridge between Japan and the U.S. on this idea of having Batman meets Godzilla. And it would have been good for Toho. I think it would have been good for William Dozier, the producer of the Batman TV series, because you know, the Batman TV series itself is really expensive. And one of the ways to recoup the cost of the TV series was through movies. There was one Batman movie made with Adam West that was mm -hmm. intended to come out before the TV series was launched, but ended up coming out the summer after. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it fared as well. It did okay. It did fine. But I don't think it was a huge success that they were hoping for. Mm -hmm. And maybe that put the kibosh on doing more Adam West Batman movies. Maybe. That was actually my first exposure to Batman 66. Yeah, and it's a fun one to watch because you have all the main villains are there. Mm -hmm. And the key thing that's missing from that Batman movie is Batgirl, mm -hmm. which is interesting because Batgirl appears in the treatment for Batman meets Godzilla. That's and so she yeah, because did, she, uh, she didn't come until what, season two, I think? Season three. Yeah, season last three, season okay. Season so three. I knew it was later. I've seen, yeah, I haven't seen every episode of Batman 66, but I've seen enough to, to know that Batgirl shows up later. Yeah, my understanding is that Batgirl was introduced into the comics prior to the TV series. It was William Dozier's idea to introduce this female Batman hero that he could bring into the TV show. That's my understanding. And I, and I think they, they filmed Tess, but they didn't choose to bring her into the TV series until late. So we have this Batman meets Godzilla treatment that might have been from 1965 that predates the TV series release that includes Batgirl. That is quite fascinating. So you're pulling elements from both the Dozier treatment and we'll just say the Japanese treatment since we don't know if it was Sekizawa's. So you're doing this very interesting melding of the two. But you're also, because this wasn't a full-fledged script, it was just a treatment, you've had to throw in some other elements to fill it out. For instance, you mentioned that the Japanese treatment just had a generic mad scientist as the villain. Well, you have 
culled from both the Godzilla and the Batman mythos to fill in the rest of that. And you filled in the mad scientist character with a Batman villain. Not a necessarily the most popular (laughs) Batman villain, but a Batman villain. That's right. And so, spoiler alert. um, So, we brought in Professor Hugo Strange, who was a Batman villain from the comics, who debuted in in the 1940s. So, he's an old Batman villain, but he was never in the TV series. And so, you know, one of the things I wanted to do was bring in a Batman villain. And so I was researching Batman villains that could fit the same type of character that this mad scientist villain in the treatment that could replace that villain. And so Hugo Strange filled the bill really nicely. You know, so the villain and the treatment controls Godzilla and Hugo Strange had a history of mind control. Mm hmm. And then also, too, he's interesting because he has kind of this vendetta against Batman in the comics. And I thought that would kind of make for kind of a fun villain to have in the book. You know, somebody that's in Batman's history and you know, we kind of allude to it at the end of issue one that there's this history between them because Professor Hugo Strange says to Batman, you left me for dead in the Gotham River. So there's this history between them, even though Hugo Strange wasn't on the TV series, we know that there's this history behind the character. And we get into that. And when we go into issue two, we talk about what actually happened in Gotham City that's got Hugo Strange all riled up and ready to wage revenge on Batman and uh, Japan itself. Mm -hmm. It's actually, in your own little way, it's kind of like the animated movie that came out a few years ago, just before Adam West died, I might add, the Batman versus Two-Face. It was essentially an animated sequel to Batman 66, so they did a Batman 66 version of Two-Face, voiced by William Shatner, I might add, which was a bonus for me. <laughs> yeah, it was <laughs> because great. Because I'm a, as, as well as uh, Godzilla and Kaiju, I'm also a huge Star Trek fan. So it seemed very appropriate because Shatner would have fit in very nicely on Batman 66, and it seemed like even back in the 60s, he probably would have been a great Two-Face as well. Yeah, and I think one I would recommend that it's an animated movie. I, I recommend it as voiced by you have Adam West and William Shatner, Burt Ward. Um, so it's mm-hmm. Burt Ward, thank you. Yeah, so it's fun to watch um, and hear those actors. So I highly recommend it. Yeah, it's kind of similar in that way that we brought in a villain that wasn't in the TV series, and then in terms of who would play this villain in real life if they hadn't made this movie. Yeah, my vote was for Telly Savalas or Yul Brenner. Oh, Yul Brenner. Ooh, I could get behind that. <laughs> yeah. So, like... <laughs> so let it be written, Batman. So let it be done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah to- two totally different actors that would have brought totally different presence to the Hugo Strange character, but I think they both could have been fun to have in a, in a Batman movie. Oh, that would have been a great, great get. And then from the Godzilla mythos, you did something that surprised me a little bit, but it also fits in wonderfully, which is you're using the Red Bamboo terrorist organization from Godzilla versus the Sea Monster. <laughs> <laughs> because I didn't know any better. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I mean... I- I actually have a bit of a fondness for that movie. It is incredibly fun. And actually, if you watch that movie, I'm sure you watched that movie. You had to do your research. It feels like a Batman 66 sort of movie at points, to be honest. And I I love that that we have uh, one of my favorite parts is that we have Akihito Harada playing the villain in this. And he gets to ham it up a little bit. And he's wearing an eye patch again like he did in Godzilla 54, except now it's on the other eye. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, we know if you wear an eye patch, you are a villain. Uh, <laughs> so, and you can tell. You can tell everybody making that movie was having a good time. So I, yeah, I just think it's does. cool that you decided to do that as opposed to the obvious choice might have been you know, grab one of the alien races or something that's been on the Godzilla movies. And no, you went for that one. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's a little obscure, but it's a. I think it, uh, hopefully it's a nice nod to the fans, Godzilla fans. Kind of my thinking on it was that leading up to Batman meets Godzilla, the time frame for this movie that I'm assuming in the comic book script is after the Batman TV series goes off the air. So it goes off the air, but they decide to do another movie and they, they go with the Batman meets Godzilla. And so timing-wise, this would have followed Ibera, Horror of the Deep, where we have Red Bamboo. So... I think it's nice continuity to kind of bring them forward into a new movie. And the other problem that it solves is the henchman problem. So um, yes, <laughs> so every villain needs a henchman. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if the henchmen were characters from another Godzilla movie? And uh, as luck would have it, we have Red Bamboo from the previous movie, and they also were involved with controlling Godzilla. And so we learn a little bit more in issue two about how Hugo Strange meets up with Red Bamboo and how they work together to use Godzilla to take over Japan. So I wanted to bring that Godzilla mythos into the movie as well. So we'll see more of Red Bamboo in issue two and issue three, but we'll also see um, more of the monster mythos as well in issue two. There's hopefully some nice Easter eggs for those Godzilla fans. And then we'll also see lots more of Godzilla in issue two. We get a little bit of taste of Godzilla in issue one, and he puts a hurt on our heroes. Batman and Robin take some heavy licking from Godzilla. As um, you would expect. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So we end issue one there in the death trap. Hugo Strange has him. He's about to get his revenge on Batman and Robin. And so that's how we end issue one. And then we go into issue two. And you know, so how do they get free? And then how do they tackle Godzilla? You know, how, how do they save Japan from Godzilla? So there's, there's a lot of fun that we're building up that'll play out in issue two and three. Oh, yeah. So besides that, what else can my listeners and your readers, hopefully, what can they expect to see in the next two issues? One big thing I think a lot of fans are going to be happy with is we see Batgirl in issue two. So we see Barbara Gordon in issue one, and she has her moment where she gets to rescue her father. So we get a little bit of taste of her as Batgirl, but in issue two, she really delivers. We get to see some fun action with Batgirl. We also get to see more of Alfred. So Alfred's there for a reason. And then we get to see Wayne Labs. So in Japan... Oh, they have a Japanese branch? They have a Japanese branch. <laughs> and so one of the interesting things in the treatment is that Batman flies his Mach 3 jet to Japan, taking the Batmobile with him. And so he's got the Batmobile in Japan. And then there's a Batman helicopter that comes from somewhere that's not explained in the treatment. <laughs> And then, like, Barbara Gordon builds her own motorcycle in the treatment. And so I thought what would be fun was to have a Wayne Lab set up in Tokyo where all these great vehicles and gadgets would be developed. So you could see Wayne Labs. You get to see some new vehicles in issue two. And you get to see um, some new gadgets. And we get to meet some new characters. So and we have Dr. Yoichi Kono, who runs the Wayne Lab. We get to meet him. And we get to go through this 
problem solving of how do we stop Godzilla. And so hopefully it'll be fun for the Godzilla fans, the way we're tackling it. It'll be fun and hopefully will be done in a way that is respectful of the movie history with Godzilla and what makes sense for what Batman could do uh, to take down King of the Monsters. <clears throat> <laughs> What's your superpower? I'm rich. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Say what you want about the Justice League movie, but I still thought that exchange was pretty hilarious. <laughs> so you've got a lot of fun things planned. I have to throw this out there because me as both a comic book fan, a superhero fan, and a kaiju fan, I just have to know if this goes over, continues to go over well, I should say. Would you consider maybe doing a sequel with brand new material that isn't from the treatment? I mean, could we see more kaiju? Maybe we could have the George Reeves Superman show up. That would be amazing. Yeah, and so we're kind of limited by a couple things. So one, you know, this is a passion project. So what makes this work is we have people that are passionate about Batman and passionate about Godzilla, and they're willing to give up their free time to put something together. So any kind of sequel that we would do would have to have the same level of passion to attract people who would want to work on this kind of project. The other thing, too, is even if we don't follow it up with any books, we've created this world, we've created characters, and I think the way we'll end this story will resonate for both the Batman and Godzilla fans that, you know, this milestone clash between the franchises kind of resonates through their worlds and the way we, we wrap things up. I think uh, I don't want to give too much away, but we're introducing. (laughs) Yeah. I don't want to, I mean, but I'm hoping the way that we end this, that one, I would love it if people begged for more and wanted to see more because you want people to have that reaction. But also, too, I hope that the way we end this, that we've created this world and that the fans can imagine additional adventures in this world. All right. So you've got issue one out right now. Do you have a timetable for when we could expect to see the next two issues? Yeah, so I'm hoping to get issue two and issue three out this year. And so issue two, we're looking at early summer. So we're already underway. The artists are working on pages now. In fact, we'll start to see some peak at those pages um, over the next month or two. And so hopefully late May, June timeframe, we'll release issue two. And then I'm hoping by the end of October, we'll have issue three out. All righty. Just in time for Halloween. So everyone can put on their Godzilla and Batman costumes and <laughs> for, uh, for the Halloween right. parties. <laughs> Which actually segues into my next question very nicely. Maybe you haven't heard this one, but I I bring it up because of the awesome t-shirts. We've been doing t-shirt giveaways for you uh, the last couple of months, so I have to bring this up. Who wins in a dance-off, Batman or Godzilla? I think it's Batman. Um, (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) uh, Realistically, if Godzilla and Batman got in the dance-off, I mean, Batman would just die because Godzilla would uh, cause an earthquake, and that would just be the end of it. (laughs) But in in terms of style, I I had to give Batman style points. (laughs) You know what? I'm cool with this answer. (laughs) I am totally cool with this answer because you're actually acknowledging that, you know, kind of like the whole Batman versus Superman thing. If Superman wanted to, he could one shot Batman. You're not one of the, as I call them, the bat bros. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Cause I've gotten into those debates and they're a little bit ridiculous. (laughs) All right. It has been wonderful having you on the show, Eric. If you ever want to come back on, maybe to talk a little bit about issue two or maybe some future projects or whatever, if they're kaiju related, you know, hit me up. I'd love to have you on again. 
Yeah, it would be my pleasure. I appreciate uh, you, Nathan, and, uh, and Jimmy as well having me on the show. I'm glad you enjoyed having him on here too, Jimmy. The talk about the bathhouse reminded you of when you did that once? <laughs> you have the weirdest backstory, man. The weirdest backstory. This is getting to comic book levels of convoluted with this guy. I'm telling you. Yeah, I, I can't think of a better way to go out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So where can everybody read this comic and learn more about your project? You can go right to www.batmanmeansgodzilla.com and read up about the artists and the writers involved in the project, as well as download issue one. And then you can follow us on Twitter at BatmanMeetsGod1. I have to admit that that cracks me up just a tiny bit. <laughs> it changes the context slightly. <laughs> I heard Batman the, meets God. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> I know. I, I heard the best line. I think it was Tim and Paul Young who have a Batman podcast are talking about the Batman meets God one handle and that, you know, that would be a totally different movie. Um, and <laughs> Uh, uh, It'd be one might, of those uh, super cheesy pure flicks movies. <laughs> well, it was like uh, maybe Bob Denver would be in it because uh, back <laughs> back, in, back in the eighties there was these God movies with George Burns. Oh yeah, and, oh God, that's what it was called. <laughs> yeah, and so yeah, like two or three of them, and, uh, <laughs> and so yeah, we could have had a we could have had the Bob Denver Batman movie. I suddenly think it would have been kind of funny if, if he walked up to him and he said, tell me, do you bleed? <laughs> <laughs> if it was Jesus, say yes, a lot. <laughs> For your sins. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, before this gets completely derailed, <laughs> I think we'll sign off. So, are you ready, Jimmy? Cue credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nathan Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter, where our handle is themonsterisla1. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wander on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Sarax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Open Way, Battle with the Colossus by Kowotani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus can be downloaded from ocremix.org. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and other fine podcatchers. Please rate and review the podcast to help spread the word about the show. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara!